When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. Sarah. Yes. Put that coffee down. You mean this coffee? That coffee. Coffee's for critics. Oh, no. I I don't know. I'm attached to this coffee. No, you obviously forgot our mantra. A, always B, B, H, hustling. Always be hustling. Always be hustling hustling. (laughs) That is the theme of this week's episode. So we're going to be talking about two different kinds of hustle with both of our movies. With our new release, we will be discussing Landscape with Invisible Hand, directed by Corey Finley. And then we're going to be looking back to the Great Depression for our discussion in this week's Watchlist segment. We're going to be talking about Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. Here's hoping that we're not stuck in the cogs of the machinery. And maybe I'll be able to keep my coffee at the end of this episode on episode 396 of Seeing and Believing. You know, you really captured his essence. Maybe his face could use a little more detail, though. It's like a photograph. I'm Adam. Chloe. Sure, you're not gonna make fun of me. Just show me. All right. Oh my god. This might be the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me. You have 62 viewers and $300 total. They don't have love in their culture. They find romantic stuff super exotic and interesting. They pay, they watch you go on dates. Family dinner is one of our most cherished human rituals. Do you have to do this right now, Chloe? You're not supposed to talk about the broadcast on the broadcast. Welcome to episode 396 of Seeing and Believing Listeners. And before we go any further, I do have to thank you slash maybe apologize uh, for indulging me, Sarah, on the Glengarry Glen Ross opening. We'll allow it. We'll, we'll permit it. I mean, who doesn't want to at least get their arms around that Alec Baldwin speech at least once in their lives? I mean, I, I had to take my shot. And you took your shot and I think it worked? I, I was hustling as... It were uh, listeners. We are going to be talking about two films that are about the various forms that hustle can take in our current society. For the watch list, we'll be going pretty far back in the past to talk about the Charlie Chaplin film Modern Times. Mm-hmm. Really looking forward to that discussion. But for our new release, we're going to be talking about Landscape with Invisible Hand, which looks to the future to tell us about the human condition and capitalist society. So this film is based on the book by M.T. Anderson, and it takes place years into a benevolent, question mark, alien occupation of Earth. The human race is still adjusting to the New World Order and their new alien overlords, a race of quirky, inscrutable, roughly bread box sized creatures called the Vuv. 
The VUV's flashy advanced technology initially holds promise for global prosperity, but has ended up rendering most human jobs and steady income obsolete. When 17-year-old artist Adam, played by Asante Black, and his new girlfriend Chloe, played by Kylie Rogers, discover the VUV are particularly fascinated with human romance and will pay for access to it, they decide to livestream their budding relationship to make a little extra cash on the side for themselves and their families. Life is good for a while until their feelings begin to change and they're forced to make very different, absurdly life-altering sacrifices for their families. So, Sarah, this is the latest film from director Corey Finley. Mm-hmm. Um, way back in the in the before Sarah times, Wade and I did talk a little bit about uh, his debut feature, Thoroughbreds, which uh, I thought showed an absurd amount of promise and has kind of made me keep an eye on whatever Finley does in his career, just because I think that he's got a lot going on as a director. This is his first foray into outright genre filmmaking, though, so it's a little bit of a departure for him. And one thing that interests me about this film is the various tones that are at play in it. So there's obviously a good old dystopian fiction going on here. I'm a sucker for that stuff. Very serious-minded. There's also a lot of humor, uh, pitch black, and otherwise in this film. Um, And... Finley has to do a lot of tricky tonal balancing to make it all come together. So my question to get us started, Sarah, is do you think he actually pulls off that balancing act here? He's he's trying to do so much. There's drama, there's romance, there's sci-fi, there's, I guess, a hint of mystery in there somewhere. There's different varieties of drama even between families and, you know, school. It's also functionally a coming-of-age story. That's a lot for one movie to try to bite off, and I don't know that it fully manages to chew it as a whole, but what intrigues me about this movie is how it kind of focuses in and zeroes in on one specific thing at a time. So you start with the budding romance, and then you get into a little bit of... um, a legal pickle, shall we say, when Adam and Chloe's scheme doesn't quite pay off the way that they expect it to. Um, And then there's some coming of age pieces and a little bit more about Adam kind of growing into himself as a person and as an artist. And I think I'm a little bit torn about this movie because I think it does some of those individual pieces very well, but it feels like it keeps jumping from location to location to location. And I'm not entirely sure how to put my finger on it, but I suspect it has something to do with the fact that this is a movie that is adapted from a YA coming of age novel. And it felt very YA to me. And Mm. I don't like saying that in a derogatory way. It just, it felt as though it was so focused on the arc of the actual act of coming of age or the arc of a school year that you could kind of see the seams and the structure a little bit. And for me, I kind of wish that those very disparate pieces had been a little bit more coherent or at least had been braided into a whole but it kind of felt as though they were forays off into different directions so curious to know what you thought about it though yeah i think we're pretty much in accord on on this one i'm like you in that i do find individual 
pieces of this film to be quite compelling. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a soft touch when it comes to futuristic dystopias, so it doesn't take much to uh, to get me on board with something like that. And that's true here as well. And I do enjoy the novelty of an alien invasion that's more focused on the weird bureaucratic fallout of it rather than you know a lot of aliens either shooting lasers or teaching humanity life lessons i feel like this film goes to some new places with its alien invasion kind of it's almost more douglas adams than independence day i was just thinking douglas adams maybe also a little bit of terry pratchett in there as well yeah yeah Yeah. and so i appreciated it going there i think though that you know we i the tonal balancing act is maybe where it falls down in that it some of the narrative business in this film is so absurd that it's difficult to engage with it as anything other than just kind of absurdist comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, And the problem is I think that the film really does want us to take a lot of it seriously. The, the romantic angst uh, between Adam and Chloe, the, you know, kind of the, the way that Adam's artistic pursuits kind of become a microcosm for humanity's resilience as a whole. Like there, there's some of that stuff that is deeply earnest and serious minded. And I don't know that it meshes comfortably with the more absurdist satire here. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that, you know, that might just be a function of the act of adapting from a novel into, you know, uh, a film. Like there, there's certain things that we just have to see on screen um, for it to work. Whereas one can imagine in a novel, maybe it was able to suggest certain things without necessarily having them on camera, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I haven't read the book, but I read, I've read. i read one of M.T. Anderson's other books, Feed, which is another futuristic dystopia, very YA. You know, there's romantic drama in that as well. And I found that to be a pretty rewarding read. Mm. And I think that this film, I can see a lot of the same preoccupations, but it feels a lot blunter and less artful. Mm. Whether that's a weakness of the source material or the adaptation, you know, that's anyone's guess. Yeah. To be fair, the movie did make me want to read the book just to try to see what Anderson was getting at. You're right. It feels blunt, but it also feels scattered at the same time. And I think that's a function of the fact that a lot of the sequences in the movie are essentially vignettes and then they get resolved and then you move on to the next thing. So we have that burgeoning romance. We have a theme where Adam's father has been absent for a really long time. Um, And then we also have this theme of trying to learn to live with and cope with an alien species that doesn't fully understand humanity, but seems to think it's got everything figured out and that humanity hasn't really fully figured out how to coexist with all that much either. And that third piece, I think, was the one that I found the most rewarding just because it was so absurd. Like, the Vuv, the aliens in this movie, 
um, which you described at the top as kind of little bread box shaped creatures, I think are inherently hilarious just based on the visual design alone. I have no idea what they look like in the book. I have no idea what they're described as, but they look like these little, literally little bread boxes on legs with nail files attached to their flippers, which they talk with. Um, and watching people interact with something that is so much smaller than them and also functionally a lot more powerful than them and watching them have to go through a translator. Like it did make like the little linguist centers of my brain kind of ping a little bit because it was fun to watch a very alien language sort of play out on screen. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, the point of the movie feels like it's so blunt that it probably could have been made in the first 30 minutes. And I kind of wish that the movie had made that point and then gone off and explored other things instead of trying to make the same point throughout a couple of different angles in a way that also still didn't feel fully cohesive, if that makes any sense. Yeah, um, you know, there. Yeah, I wish I could remember which movie it was that we were talking about. It was a horror film where we kind of talked a little bit about how there's a certain brand of horror film that's all about the metaphor mm -hmm. and in kind of making itself about that metaphor so completely, it forfeits its ability to really get under your skin and becomes a singular experience. I don't know if, can it you was, remember? Don't worry, darling, actually. That was, don't, okay, so another very high concept sci-fi film yes. about uh, the fact that we live in a society. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean... I feel like that's kind of what's going on here. Um, Landscape with Invisible Hand is very much intending to um, make a point about, you know, life under capitalism, specifically life under oligarchs. Uh, you know, these um, very powerful uh, people who are able to affect broad swaths of, of everyday life while being kind of wholly divorced from what everyday life is for most people. Mm -hmm. And um, in kind of centering that metaphor in the body of these aliens, it kind of results in this uncomfortable marriage where in some ways the aliens are truly alien. The way they speak by rubbing their, their flippers together, mm -hmm. the way they basically live in, in, termite warrens you know like the, they're they're very strange beings just the way they look and the way they act but then at the same time they are also bureaucrats who you know know what a lawsuit is and you know watch tv and live streams and those two things it feels a little bit like the movie kind of wants to have these really completely alien creatures but also wants them to be kind of a very much one-to-one -one, uh, allegory for uh, a certain kind of wealthy person in our reality, and I just I just don't think that works mm. in, in the end. It makes it makes it difficult to engage with the film without simply kind of doing the you know the mental calculus of substituting a for b in the metaphor it's working from and again like we were talking about with don't worry darling that kind of robs it of its ability to actually be something that sticks with you uh for a long time after you're finished watching it yeah which is really a shame because one of the things that i did appreciate about this movie quite a lot even though 
it's a little bit disjointed and the connective tissue between the different pieces of the movie aren't fully there. It does take several fairly wild left turns that I wasn't expecting. And the movie's like initial thrust is this burgeoning relationship between Adam and Chloe. And we get through that so quickly that I was a little bit worried that the movie was going to just fully run out of juice and fall completely flat. I don't think that that entirely happens, but the movie does decide to take that idea and run with it for as far as it needs to go and then completely branch off into other things. Like it's, it's a heavy focus on Adam specifically. We kind of lose sight of Chloe throughout the rest of the movie. And I wish that I had gotten a little bit more of who she is as a character more so than we get. But I did appreciate that the movie was willing to take a detour and go find something a little bit different, maybe something about Vov's society, maybe a little bit more about Adam's home life and what he grew up in, and maybe a little bit more about his artistic practice. He's a painter, hence the name of the movie. Um, and so, again, I'm, I'm torn because I think there's some there there. I just don't feel like it's such a cohesive unit that it fully made sense. But those individual pieces and the surprising turns that the movie takes, I think, did work for me in a way. Yeah, the um, the art angle, I think, uh, is probably the is what I found most thought provoking, compelling about the film mm. in the way that, uh, you know, kind of late in the film, you know, Adam uh, decides to embark on a an artistic project that's larger than anything he's embarked on previously, mm-hmm. and it starts to to gain more attention than his previous projects have, and the developments in his life that this attention leads to, I think, um, are both very interesting just in terms of the character drama of it all, just the way that a seventeen year old would react to having that kind of attention thrust upon him, but also in terms of just what it it says about the tendency for um, any kind of art to be co-opted by uh, those in power uh, for their own ends, that's also super interesting. And I mean, that's a lot of what movies are is, you know, they're so vastly expensive and uh, made under the auspices of large companies and yet, is it possible for the spark of creativity to not be snuffed out by that? And that tension, that that push and pull, we get to see from Adam's perspective as a creator himself. I found that to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it to be more interesting, I guess, than the relationship between him and Chloe, mostly just because... I don't know. I felt like, and I'm interested in your thoughts too, because you are not as much of a fossil as I am. <laughs> but uh, to, to me, it did feel a little bit sort of like a very by the numbers sort of satire of these, these kids in there and their smartphones and their tendency to record everything felt very much like a, you know, the sort of thing that was being said when the iPhone first came out Mm. and so even though i wasn't bored or uninterested in that angle i don't know that finley really manages to do a whole lot that's new or interesting with that yeah it's 
interesting. The initial romance does feel a little bit perfunctory, but then the way that these two characters go about demonstrating it to the Vuv is kind of fascinating because they're essentially broadcasting their entire thoughts to the Vuv and then the Vuv will pay them for that exposure. I kind of appreciated it specifically because it felt like one character was much more internet savvy, for lack of a better term, than the other in being willing to exploit that relationship and to demonstrate pieces of her and her personality in a way that the other character just was not as comfortable with living out. Um, I don't know if this is necessarily the case for you, but I found that a lot of people that I know who are couples tend to have one person who is extremely online and one person who is not extremely online. At least that's the case in my own marriage, and I am the extremely online one. Um, And so there was kind of this ring of truth around that detail, specifically with one character being willing to just basically put her entire relationship out there. And that is a level of vulnerability that I am not comfortable with exposing to the outside world, but I do know of or have followed people online who are willing to do that. And then they'll just refer to their partner by an initial or something because their partner is not as comfortable with it. As a snapshot of two people who have very different relationships with the internet and with interacting with complete and total strangers, I think that that does work. I do kind of wish that it had dug a little bit deeper beyond just an observation of some couples are like this. Um, Because I don't think it's really saying anything particularly insightful. It's just observing that it's a fact of life. Yeah, uh, I mean, and it is... And I guess this is kind of what we keep saying, repeating ourselves about this film, is that there there are interesting choices that Finley makes in giving this to us that, at least for me, I'm unwilling to dismiss it entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene, it's uh, early on between Chloe and Adam, where they're first embarking on this sort of relationship live stream idea. And the way that Finley uh, films that initial... Um, sort of broadcast for them is uh, he gives a shot reverse shot uh, entirely from the point of view of each character. So we're essentially looking straight on They're They're right in the center of the frame. They're looking directly at us and then he'll give us, you know, the reverse shot of the other character uh, and, and their, and their perspective. And at one point, uh, Chloe you know, reaches out um, to take Adam by the shoulders to reassure him to, to say, you know, this isn't, this isn't that strange. Just be yourself uh you like yourself is good you know like and um the interaction um in terms of for for the characters is a very reassuring warm one she is being genuinely reassuring towards him it's not manufactured it's very authentic and sincere but finley uh the way he shoots that because it's um such a a dead-on flat composition what we're seeing as the audience is Chloe's arms sort of like holding, you know, reaching out towards the frame and kind of like pinning it in place. Mm. And I really appreciated how suggestive that is of the way that even in trying to reassure him that, you know, everything is is natural and normal and you just got to be yourself, she's still imposing a frame upon the experience. That's really great. And I think that's why... I find Finley so promising as a filmmaker is he does find 
places in this film to use cinematic language to really suggest things in the same way that uh you know like a novel might be suggestive in different ways Mm -hmm. um i just i don't know that he's able to sustain that for all of the moments of this film particularly with the the satire of when when the vuvs come to sue our teenage protagonists (laughs) which is such a dystopian detail so i was wondering seeing as how you are a sucker for this sort of thing, how did this dystopia specifically work for you? I mean, I, I just, I felt like it was kind of thinly sketched. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's hard for a film, especially because you, you, you have to kind of find that balance between suggesting things without, you know, making the movie three hours long and showing us everything. But you also, if, if you j- sketch too much, then it ends up just feeling like a sketch. And I felt like, overall this film kind of landed on the wrong end of that for me it felt it felt thin like i it was telling me how things work but it was raising lots of questions in my mind about why it worked that way and what does the rest of the world look like outside of the world of these of these teenagers i have so many questions about the economy of this specific version of planet earth yeah i kind of landed on that as well and i think that sort of speaks to the YA-ness of this story because so often when you're dealing in a sci-fi setting for a YA novel, all you need is just kind of the setup and the explanation of the world in this instance is terrible and here's the reason why, but we're not going to really get into the details too much. It's all surface level. Um, Take, I don't know, something like The Hunger Games where you just have this idea of bunch of kids get sent as tribute and they have to fight to the death or um i don't know any other ya novel that involves a society that is that revolves around sorting people into like three or four different factions i think that's an intriguing hook and a pretty decent way to get somebody sucked into the world and think well maybe i belong in this specific group of people within this world but if you stop to think about what actually works to prop up that society and that system, it all kind of starts to fall apart. And here I think the Vuv are both an interesting instigator for the action because they're the ones who hold all of that economic power. And then at the same time, they're also kind of that, you know, sorting mechanism where they're used to explain why the world is the way that it is, but they don't really add any additional depth, you know, kind of kind of an additional version of the metaphor is kind of the entire point although i did find this metaphor much more interesting yeah i i wonder so with the hunger games you know there are those like the the 12 districts right and Mm -hmm. and, you know even though like if you think too hard about it it might not make a whole lot of sense the the first book i i never read past the the first one (laughs) i've watched any of the movies but in the first book it's it's so focused on you know katniss and the games themselves that you know, it just sort of establishes, hey, there are these other districts. They're all different. They've got their own characteristics. Now, you know, onto the important stuff. And so it doesn't spend a whole lot of time dwelling on those questions that invites the audience to start thinking too hard about it. And I think the problem with uh, Landscape with Invisible Hand is it's in order to to make its satire about capitalism stick it really does have to kind of get into the weeds about, you know, this economy and the way that education and labor and government all kind of intersect that it raise it, it sort of raises a lot of those questions 
for the audience where it it would have been better served kind of leaving those off in the shadows a little bit. Yeah, I agree. And it really is a shame because there are moments where you can kind of see a little bit of those depths. And I think a lot of it comes from the performances in this movie. I like Desante Black in this quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's very good. Um, weirdly, William Jackson Harper pops up at one point in this movie and I saw his face and I got so excited because it was just so good to see him on the screen again. It's hard not to think it. I still have a hard time not seeing Cheedy from the good place whenever I see him on screen, but he, he's a welcome presence for sure. He also plays a minor character in, um, Jim Jarmusch's Patterson as well. And so I think that's how I first saw him. So I also kind of associate him with that character who is just a kind of a sad sack in a bar who's, who's sad because a girl dumped him essentially. But even when he's given bit parts like in Patterson and, and also unfortunately like in here, um, he still gives those characters some really good and interesting depth and he's never playing the same guy every single time. So unfortunately it's only four or five minutes of screen time, but it was a really welcome presence on that screen. Yeah. It was also nice to see uh, Josh Hamilton show up again, uh, again as a father figure, but a very different father figure from uh, where a lot of uh, viewers will recognize him from like uh, as the, the long-suffering father in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. He's so good in that film, and he's so good in this one, uh, playing kind of the the alternate dimension version of the father, where again, like the the a father who cares very much about his children, but in this case, it's sort of warped into a version where he's obsequiously devoted to just like finding the the right way to make himself useful to the aliens so that his children can have a good life, which is laudable, but is also deeply wrongheaded. <laughs> but also, and again, like I keep coming back to, I don't want to dismiss out of hand. I think that's very perceptive about the way that systems have a tendency to uh, warp people into, into behaving in ways that are anti-human by preying on their their most positive instincts and desires. Mm. You know, no mm-hmm. nobody in this film is really well, I guess Chloe's brother is sort of the closest thing we have to just like a two-dimensional bad guy. Yeah. But everybody else is sort of they might make bad decisions, but they're doing it basically because they're just trying to make their way in this new world order. And sometimes that means, you know, making yourself a footstool to a domineering alien race. Yeah. And it might not be the quote unquote heroic thing to do, but it's so understandable. Mm-hmm. And it, it it's a very compassionate view of humanity. And I appreciated that. And I think crucially, Chloe's brother Hunter, who's played by Michael Gandolfini, is also not treated just as a villain. He's got those villainous tendencies, but I think we're also made to understand where he's coming from too. And I don't think that the movie uses him entirely as just an antagonist i think there are there are a couple Man, of depths there too i don't know like that that performance he is he is deeply unlikable in this film oh he's definitely playing like older sibling in a ya novel i think but i think that the movie also understands the corner into which his character has been pushed and it may not necessarily condone all of his choices but it did feel as though the movie also understood why he was the way that he was. And it wasn't just because he's a bad person. It's that 
he's a desperate person and desperate people sometimes make really bad choices too. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I had a hard time with that character, mostly just because he's so unpleasant, even in situations where you would expect him to at least be marginally polite that I, I had a hard time seeing him as anything other than, you know, the stereotypical, you know, jerky older sibling from, from a YA novel. Mm -hmm. But I do think the, the rest of the performances are pretty much across the board, very strong. And I, I think that that's maybe, you know, it, it's, it's wonderful to see actors like Tiffany Haddish and William Jackson Harper and mm -hmm. Josh Hamilton doing, strung their stuff, say nothing of Asante Black, who I was very impressed by mm -hmm. just the, the subtlety of his work. Um, but I think they're, they're let down by maybe a screenplay that is just not as subtle and finely shaded as they are. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's why like, I, I am frustrated by the film because I can see glimmers of promise in it, but just, it ended up not really working for me in the end. Yeah. I thought it was frustrating, but I found it intriguing almost in equal measure. So I'm glad I watched it for what it's worth. It's definitely one of the weirder movies I think I've watched in a while. And that in and of itself feels kind of special, even though the movie itself doesn't quite manage to stick the landing. Well, listeners, uh, we're very curious to know your thoughts if you've had a chance to see this movie. Obviously, we had mixed feelings about it, but mm -hmm. there is a lot to talk and to think about with Landscape with Invisible Hands. So if you've seen the film and have thoughts, you can always let us know. Reach out to us on Letterboxd. Our handle over there is cbelievepod. Or you can also email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Our mailbox is always open. We're going to go back to the past uh, visit with a little tramp with our review of modern times here in a second now it's time for the conversation this is the part of the show normally where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there helping us keep the conversation about movies going and first off uh we just want to say thanks to those of you who who wrote in mm -hmm. uh expressing uh your positive feelings uh, about the show in light of our announcement last week that we would be you know, bring the podcast to a conclusion. It was not a decision that we came to lightly, but mm -hmm. it was really nice to, you know, hear from you listeners uh, out there about, you know, what, what you thought about the show and, and your feelings about uh, what we're going to be doing next. So. Yeah, it's, I mean, doing the show has been really meaningful to me personally. So I'm glad to say that we're still keeping that conversation going. It just won't be necessarily an audio form. So yeah, so uh, we did mention last week that more news would be forthcoming about the future of seeing and believing. The podcast might be ending at least in weekly format, but Sarah and I, we're still going to be talking to each other uh, and hopefully talking to you guys. So Seeing and Believing is going to be pivoting more towards uh, written reviews. Uh, we've got a sub stack that we're getting all fine-tuned and ready to push out to uh, our listeners and anyone else who's interested. So keep an eye out for the sign-up link for that newsletter. We're really excited to start on that new project. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to know what this kind of collaborative relationship will look like in, in written format rather than audio. Absolutely. I mean, we're still going to have to keep talking. Like, 
Yeah. That's kind of the nature of the job anyway, but we're definitely going to have to keep talking about movies no matter what format it ends up taking. So you can't get rid of me that easily. (laughs) It's Vampire Rules. We talked about this when I first joined the show. Vampire Rules, as always, apply whether you're doing a podcast or a Substack. Either way, I'm not looking to get rid of you. I'm looking forward to doing some more and hopefully some of you listeners will be along for the ride. So uh, keep an eye out for more information, but Substack's coming. It's going to be great. Make sure to sign up when that link goes out. And now it's time for the watch list. This is the part of the show, of course, where one host picks a film that the other host hasn't seen. We both watch it and then we talk about it. And to pair with the capitalistic dystopia of Landscape with Invisible Hand, Sarah, you reached all the way back to 1936 with Charlie Chaplin's modern times Mm -hmm. this is of course another one of his little tramp movies and in this film it sees the little tramp as a factory worker who loses his job loses another job loses another job gets a couple jobs meets a young woman in similarly desperate straits and looks to find a way where they can both survive in this world together Lots of physical comedy ensues, of course, but also, as has been my experience with all the Chaplin films I've seen, there's a lot of heart underlying the comedy as well. So, Sarah, I mentioned the uh, at least one tie-in at the top of this segment. I'm curious to know if you had anything else in mind uh, that caused Modern Times to suggest itself as you were looking for a pairing with Landscape with Invisible Hand. I mean, I was thinking about uh, two characters potentially finding love in a hopeless landscape, a hopeless economic landscape specifically. Um, Both movies are also fairly episodic, but Mm. I think where modern times soars, where landscape kind of falls a little bit flat, is that modern times isn't interested in just telling a story that is about a metaphor It's just interested in going from one set of hijinks to the other, to the other, to the other. And all of those end up getting united pretty well with the character of Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp. And then also with the young woman who's played by Paulette Goddard, who might be one of my favorite movie characters, period, just because she's so much fun to watch on screen. I gotta say, this is... What, the first film where I actually encountered Paulette Goddard for the first time. And what a revelation. She is so great in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's one of those one of those performances that really makes you understand kind of the silver screen, kind of like the mystique that it holds because she is just dynamite in this in this film. And strangely, like, she seems so modern of a character, even though, you know, this is almost a hundred years old at this point. Watching her, you know, she she seems like she step she could have stepped out of the 90s. Like there, there's something about her screen presence that is so electrifying that makes her, you know, she she totally holds her own with Chaplin on screen. Mm-hmm. And then just by herself, you almost kind of just want to watch an entire movie about her which is no mean feat next to, you know, the little tramp. So I was kind of blown away by her, to be honest. And uh, I, I don't know. I love this film. Uh, I'm no so surprise. glad to hear that. I mean, it's, Cha- you know, it's Chaplin's Modern Times. Chances were pretty good that I was going to like it. But uh, I just really 
was on board with it and laughing and, you know, feeling the feels at all the right points. It's just, it's wonderful. And, you know, Chaplin's great. Of course he is. But I think a lot of the credit goes to Goddard's performance as well. She's wonderful. I love the way that she holds herself. And I love the way that the camera kind of frames her and the way that it is it is able to express her attitude towards the world. She's a character who's kind of stuck in desperate straits. She's, she is effectively like unhoused and stealing in order to be able to feed herself. And she's on the run from the law. And yet this character also has a pretty significant well of joy that she's working from. You get the sense that her hard times have not brought her down. And she feels like, I don't know, a, a pretty three-dimensional character in what could have been otherwise extremely, I don't know, exploitative stakes. I And she, she does all of that, I think, with that primarily physical performance. I can't remember if she actually, if we actually hear her talk at all, because this is a movie that also kind of mixes some sound and silent film techniques. Like sound film had been around for a decent amount of time before this movie came out. And we get a few characters who talk on screen, but most of it is silent movie hijinks and pratfalls. And we watch characters speak to each other. And then occasionally you'll get a title card giving some of the dialogue or some of the context. And I love that you don't really need a ton of dialogue or context for this character to be able to work because the moment that we meet her, she's stealing bananas and she has a knife in her mouth. Like she's just holding this knife in her mouth so that she has it available for her to be able to cut more bananas off the stock. And you get so much about that character just from the kind of devil may care attitude that she's using, even as she's on the lookout for the sailors who might potentially catch her in the act of stealing food. Best tooth performance in cinema history, maybe? Like, I I, I mean, yeah, I don't want to be too flippant, but I think a lot of what gives her character such uh, a live wire uh, effect on the audience is is her her smile like the the way that when she smiles like you see all her teeth like you see everything and that that makes her you know it's a very winning you know uh, endearing performance but it's also just ever so slightly ferocious yes and i think that that's why she doesn't just seem like uh, a damsel or a love interest or you know a mischief maker she seems like somebody who contains multitudes and Paulette Goddard just suggests that um, through the smile, through kind of the energy with which she throws herself into whatever pursuit happens to be the whatever hijink, I guess, is the order of the day. Mm -hmm. She throws herself into it 100 percent. And I mean, you kind of have to do that when you've got, you know, Chaplin over here, you know, doing his little tramp thing. Mm -hmm. um, and she holds her own part just because of the sheer energy with which she flings herself into these situations and the joy that she seems to derive from it. Like she's not just along for the ride. She chooses this and she wants it because it's a lot of fun and she wouldn't want to do it with anyone else other than the little tree. Yeah, she's great. She doesn't really do all that many stunts, though, which is kind of remarkable to think about because she does have that level of energy and the ability to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Chaplin, but a lot of what she's doing is 
kind of playing that supporting character. And I think every time she does that, she is able to both prop up Chaplin's character and then also sort of steal the scene from him simultaneously. And that's a really tricky balancing act because she's not sucking all of the oxygen out of the room. Um, And she is supporting the story, but she's also sort of driving it in a way. Um, Anytime the little tramp is off screen somewhere further away from her, she's still got that agency and she's still doing something in order to be able to stay alive and stay out of the clutches of the police who are trying to catch her because she's also um, wanted for vagrancy. And I think that's quite lovely, especially watching Chaplin just kind of watching Chaplin's character just kind of um, pop in and out of prison and be a little bit more of a character who things happen to. He doesn't really cause a lot of the action. Things just happen to him and he reacts to it. And a lot of what makes the movie so funny is the way that he reacts to that. Whereas with Goddard's character, she is out there hustling, I guess, for lack of a better term. And driving a lot of that action because she's willing to just sort of take life by the throat and make what she can out of it, even if it's trying to make a home out of a shack down by the river. Yeah, yeah the 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 that shack scene is is wonderful. Just how no matter what surface uh, Chaplin touches or uh, what uh, chair he sits in. It all it it, it collapsed and conks him on the head, mm-hmm. um, and I think I you know I've always there there's kind of this um, this ongoing debate about you know who who is who is who is better Keaton or Chaplin mm-hmm. or, or Lloyd I guess um, and you know I don't like to put them up against each other because you know I love them both they're they're all my children <laughs> um, but I you know there's something about I think Chaplin's got a certain I think Keaton, his stunts are maybe more daring. Like they're just, you, you kind of watch and you're just like, how is, how did anybody make it out of the shoot alive? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like Chaplin, there's kind of a, an artistry and a meticulousness with the way that certain sequences are conceived and executed that um, is distinct from Keaton. I'm not going to say it's necessarily better, but it's, it's wholly Chaplin. It's very distinctively him and I think that that's why um, a perfor- there's room for a performance like Goddard's in this film is that he does kind of conceive of of this not just as a series of hijinks, but kind of as a journey that these two characters go on together mm. with each other and how that's kind of contrasted with the the rest of the world of the film, which where everyone's kind of they're out for themselves. Yeah, they can. They they just need to take care of themselves. Um, the the cops are literally they're they're always hovering somewhere, waiting to pick you up for some infraction, and they're to be avoided rather than than looked to for assistance. Mm-hmm. And the that standing in such sharp contrast to the relationship between uh, Chaplin and, and Goddard, I think that's it's a counterpoint that's that's lovely and that is so meticulously thought out i feel like it gives the impression of that that it's just enchanting i guess yeah it's meticulously thought out but um it feels spontaneous and i think a lot of that comes from both performers sense of comedic timing 
And I think that's one of the things that sets Chaplin apart, especially from everybody else like him, is the way that he's able to repeat a gag and time it so that it doesn't feel old. It always feels fresh. I'm thinking of the sequence when he's in jail and he's seated next to his cellmate and the two of them are trying to eat and he keeps trying to grab a loaf of bread and his cellmate keeps taking it and saying like, no, that's my bread. Like you've got to go find your own somewhere else. And then Chaplin's able to turn the tables on him about two minutes later And the way that he grabs the bread is almost an exact echo of the other prisoners grabbing of that bread. But he does it in such a way where you can tell he's sort of he's he's got the upper hand on this guy and he knows that he does. And he's doing it with a level of manic energy that the other guy just cannot hope to match. But he does it so that we can tell exactly what he's going to do a half second before he does it. Mm -hmm. And then he follows through and he does it. And then it's almost as though he's he's trying to dangle that in front of the other guy's nose and the other guy can't do a single thing about it because he just simply can't keep up with the timing. That's a really good observation about how the audience always knows exactly what Chaplin's going to do just a half second before he does it, mm-hmm. which it, it's that's exactly how how this film works is that you're 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 always surprised but you're you're always surprised, you know, you're you're not surprised in the sense that it's just always a bunch of chaos happening on screen. You can't possibly imagine what's going to happen next. You can, but you're not given. You're only given just enough time to think, oh, this is where it's going to go next, and then he does it, which is very funny, but also deeply satisfying to watch. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the difference between somebody who you know could just make jokes and somebody who's just very skilled at constructing sequences. Mm-hmm. I loved the 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 first big set piece in the film is uh chaplin working at the factory uh being used as the guinea pig for this new device that's supposed to cut down on the the length of lunch breaks for the workforce he essentially gets strapped into this contraption that essentially force feeds him all of his lunch automatically and i mean it's it's Obviously, you know, the various things that go wrong are, are very funny. What surprised me was Chaplin's use of sound in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't expecting sound to play such a big role in modern times. But in this scene specifically, there's this uh, um, this electrical sound that plays whenever the machine's about to go on the fritz. And the way that Chaplin employs that sparingly to, to as sort of a, a little auditory call back to let us know, okay, something else is going to go wrong. Again, it's just, it's a detail that you wouldn't necessarily miss if it weren't there. It would still be very funny to watch Chaplin, you know, get get manhandled by corn on the cob. <laughs> yeah. But the fact that he's getting manhandled and also every now and then the machine will go is hilarious. Yeah, and then it'll wipe his mouth for him as well. And it does that so that I don't know, he can preserve his mustache or something like that. Um, That sequence is great. And I think it's a good illustration of the construction of a joke from setup all the way down to payoff to being able to see what's coming and then also still deliver it in a way that's really funny. One of the other sequences that I love is uh, much later in the movie, but almost a complete reversal of this one. Chaplin has been able to take some work as a mechanics assistant in another factory somewhere. And the mechanic, like 
the little tramp before him has been sucked into the machinery. And then the machinery stops because it's lunchtime. Nothing is powered in the factory. And the little tramp has the freedom to be able to go and get his lunchbox to go and get his lunchbox, but his boss is stuck in the machinery without the use of his hands. So the little tramp is kind of forced to um, feed him his lunch. <laughs> and obviously things go wrong and hijinks ensue, but it cracks me up that the tables get turned in a way. And it's not really commented on. It's just a fun reversal of that joke. And yet it still works because he's kind of stuck in the same position that he was when he was on the assembly line strapped into the machine, except now he's the one who's doing the feeding. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as he's out of that situation, um, a bunch of other workers come by and say, well, get your coat. We're all going on strike now. <laughs> yeah. It's the perfect capper on a very funny scene. Yeah. I mean, the, this, the setups and payoffs in this film are just next level. And the other thing that surprised me about this film was how the tramp in this film isn't quite as hapless as he is in, in the other ones I've seen. Like I think of city city lights, I think is one of the very few perfect films ever made. I, mm. I it utterly flawless. I love that film to death, but the tramp in that film is much more, he's much more put upon. Like he, he's still kind of like, you know, does the, the, you know, the, giving other characters the runaround because he's just that much more spry than they are and just can think on his feet really quickly. Mm -hmm. But he's also at the end of the day, city lights is much more, you know, about, you know, he's down and out and that's kind of who he is. He he's, he's always down and out in this film. He kind of is able to not only think on his feet, but also intentionally turn the tables in some moments. And that I think is, probably very intentional on, on Chaplin's part, just because this is a film that has some very pointed commentary for uh, uh, about labor and the, you know, the, the use of uh, state power, you know, back in the 1930s. And, you know, it, he doesn't put too fine a point on because this is a comedy and we're not here for a screed, mm -hmm. but also it is very pointed. And the fact that he uses the tramp, in this case, to not just be the put upon every man, but also the guy who, in his own way, kind of fights back a little bit, pushes back a little bit. Um, I don't know. It feels like an evolution in the Tramp's persona to me. Yeah, he's got a level of dignity and agency, I think, that I like quite a lot. And at the same time, he's still kind of that sort of hapless, like still swept up in forces beyond his control. And then it's most interesting to watch him do something with those circumstances that he's been swept up in. I think one of the more, I don't know, iconic shots is of the little tramp holding a flag and then a protest coming around the corner behind him. And they just sort of sweep up after him. And it looks as though he's leading the march, even though he never intended to in the first place. And then when the police come to break up the march, they arrest him as the ringleader because he's the one walking out front with a flag. And He's kind of stuck in that difficult position of being both a figurehead for the labor movement and then also having not intended to ever be. And yet at the same time, because he is an everyman who works in a factory every day, he's a very fitting character to take that symbolic place. And I like that 
the movie doesn't try to just treat him as just that symbol. He's also still his own character who's doing what he can to get by. And occasionally that will involve a nervous breakdown on an assembly line where he starts squirting oil on all of his superiors. Also probably one of, one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie because he's just had it and he's done and he's going to take whatever tools he has to hand and he's going to use them. And I don't know, that that sense of joyful sabotage is something that I appreciate watching very much. Yeah. And, and again, like it, it's, it's not coming into this film from city lights. I was not expecting him to, to not just sort of spray someone in the face because of course he would, but to spray someone in the face and mean it yes. was uh, surprising to me. Uh, not in a bad way. Just uh, it was nice to, to see that, that kind of slightly different angle on, on the character. Um, I am curious to know just if you had to pick a favorite bit from this movie, what would it be? Oh man. Um, probably the roller skates. He's roller skating blindfolded near the edge of a very steep drop. Um, it's kind of unstudied and it's just, it's there and it's not really doing anything else, but I think it speaks to the precarity of the character without actually being a metaphor for his precarity. It also speaks to the character's sense of joy and appreciation for life. And it does a good job of kind of cementing the bond between the little tramp and the young woman as well because she's terrified for him because she can see the danger that he's in and he can't. And the fun capper on the end of that sequence is he's been skating around backwards and blindfolded next to um, a balcony that's broken, I think on the fourth floor of a department store. And she manages to get him away from the edge, take the blindfold off him. And then he looks and he sees Uh the drop and um, he immediately becomes a lot less graceful than he was beforehand. And that's the only moment where like, you can tell he probably actually is in any form of real danger. And I think it does a good job of underlining the stakes under which these characters are living without having to make some sort of a political statement about it, um, which I really appreciated. Like all art is kind of inherently political because it's made in a political situation, but also at the same time, like it's just there and it's interesting to watch someone make a movie about how workers feel inherently a little bit precarious in their economic situation and to feel kind of that resonance across time, even though the circumstances have changed completely, you know, like it, it feels comforting and also kind of sad at the same time. Yeah. Um, that, that moment, you know, harkens made, made me think of the, you know, the bit in those, you know, coyote and roadrunner cartoons where the coyote can all, can always run on, on, you know, he can always run off the cliff and keep running in midair until he looks down mm-hmm. and then he realizes just, you know, what's, what's about to happen. And the realization is what causes the drop. And I feel like in the context of this film, which is, you know, so pointedly about, you know, workers and kind of the overall economic precarity of the average person during the great depression, um, that you can hold on to that joy until you realize just how close to the edge you, you are maybe. Mm-hmm. And again, like it's, it's mostly funny. You know, it's mostly just funny to watch Chaplin be as graceful as can be when he's 
skating backwards and blindfolded. And then when he can actually see what's going on, that's when he becomes rubber legged and, and falls all over himself. It's, it's, yeah, it's wonderful. And it's also, again, the physical acting there is, you know, a, it's so integral to that sequence working the way it does. So at the risk of sounding like we're just trading off telling each other about gags for a movie that we both watched, but um, I'm also kind of delighted because I think this might be the first comedy where we're both on the same page. I'm curious to know which of those sequences works best for you. Oh man. I, I really like that, that opening set piece with the, the, the automatic, the, the machine that feeds lunch, the lunch machine. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I laughed so hard at Good. that part. I just the the way that the the um the attachment that wipes his his mouth keeps coming in to sort of like provide a little exclamation point at the end of of each new indignity was just wonderful. And I mean, maybe fittingly the 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 other lunch scene where he's trying to feed his supervisor and he like grabs a. a uh, a funnel that was used for oil and like tries to use that to get the soup in the guy's mouth. It's just, I don't know there. Maybe it's something about food humor that does it for me, but those two sequences, I just, I couldn't get over how intricately constructed they were and how hilarious they were at the same time, I guess. And well, I don't know. I, I'm saying more and more scenes. So maybe I just love the whole thing. I'm <laughs> maybe, so glad it's, that you it's love hard, this movie. <laughs> it's hard to pick just one, but if I had to, gun to my head, it would probably be one of those two. That's a good choice. Uh, listeners, that is our review of Modern Times. It's a classic for a reason, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, uh, if you didn't hear last week's episode, we shared that it is streaming for those of you with a Max subscription. So you can catch it there. You can also catch it uh on demand on various other services it's also well. on criterion too oh yes if you have the criterion streaming uh service it is on there as well so if you haven't watched already please watch it it's a great pick me up um if you have seen it we're very interested to hear what your favorite sequences maybe were uh you can hit us up on letterboxd or on email with that so we're going to go a, a little bit darker next week sarah uh and also kind of fill in a blind spot that we uh, had from earlier in the year. So we were both very interested in seeing Laurel Parmet's indie drama, The Starling Girl, about the relationship between a, a teenage girl and her youth pastor. Um, we weren't able to make time for that during our normal schedule, but we're rectifying that now that it's available to stream. So we're going to be talking about that, and I'm going to be pairing it with uh, the Devil's Backbone because I'm a Guillermo del Toro fanboy and that's what I do. So if you want to watch along with us for that, it is streaming with an Amazon Prime subscription. It's also available to rent on demand elsewhere. So looking forward to that next week. Very much looking forward to both those movies. But that'll do it for this week. Once again, thanks for joining us, listeners. Seeing Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McClinathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. <laughs>